Okay, hello everybody. Today is Tuesday. It is time for True Crime Talk Radio. And first, I need to begin by apologizing for yesterday. Black Box Online Radio came out a little bit later than planned, but thank you to everyone who visited the episode Arthur Lee Allen and the Murder of Valentine Sally. There are several Zodiac theorists out there who believe that their prime suspect in the Zodiac mystery also committed additional murders that most people have overlooked in the case, and they have their own reasons for that. And I was talking about some claims that were made by the guys who host the channel ZNN, that's Zodiac News Network, and they believe that not only was Arthur Lee Allen the Zodiac killer, but also that he committed the murder of a girl named Carolyn Eaton in 1982. Carolyn Eaton was unidentified for many years, and they simply referred to her as Valentine Sally. It was a more humanizing way than simply saying Jane Doe. But um, through DNA testing, Carolyn Eaton was positively identified. They've, they are almost certain, or perhaps they are certain, they can positively say that Valentine Sally is indeed Carolyn Eaton. And I put that episode in a playlist with some other um, similar stories, if you will, such as Lawrence Kane and the murder of Dana Lowell, Gareth Penn and the murder of Nikki Benedict, Michael O'Hare and the murder of Joan Webster, where people have their Zodiac theory, and not only do they say this person's the Zodiac killer, but they also have an additional set of murders that they think other people aren't paying attention to. I would invite you guys to listen to any of uh, those in the future. There's all, Like I said, it's arranged into a playlist. But I would also like to remind you guys that in addition to listening, another great way to support the show is to go over to the Amazon page and get a copy of the book Killer on a White Horse by me, Ned DeHaan. It is a novel, fiction, murder mystery, but feel free to have a look. You can even get one of those free sample things on your Kindle e-reader and such. Killer on a White Horse by me, Ned DeHaan, available on Amazon.com, link in the description box. And of course, there's always the Teespring page. Have a look at some of the merchandise, t-shirts, and wonderful coffee mugs. Many things in the description box there. And remember, being weird is not a crime. Today I would like to begin with something that is going to be a very big segue from the Son of Sam and Maury Terry into the Long Island serial killer. I was watching some things about Maury Terry and the ultimate evil over the weekend, and to begin I was on Manny Grossman's channel and I saw an excellent one of his true crime walk-in talks, but before I even make any comments about that, I got on the YouTube channel Lionel Nation. It's hosted by Lionel. He uses one name, but his real name is William LeBron. He's a radio host, and some people say everybody in America knows who he is, and other people say, I have no idea what you're talking about. You don't mean Lionel Richie, do you? But he hosts the channel Lionel Nation, and he talked about some first-hand experiences that he had with Maury Terry, the author of The Ultimate Evil. Maury Terry believed that there was a link among the Son of Sam murders in the 1970s, plus the Manson family crimes in the 1960s, as well as the 1974 murder of Arliss Perry, in what I call the shadow network of cult-like activity, that there is this nationwide murderous cult, there's this nationwide movement that drives people to kill for certain reasons that I won't even get into now. But I was listening to Lionel talk, and he said that he watched the Sons of Sam documentary on Netflix, and they talked about how Maury Terry would go to 
the bar, and he would get drunk, and he would talk about the son of Sam Case and Charles Manson. And Lionel said he knew the guy firsthand. He even showed up his, um, you know, something handwritten that Maury Terry had provided him with. And he's like, all of that is true. And he didn't really take the guy too seriously in the past. But after watching that Sons of Sam documentary, he's like, all right, I think Maury Terry was right about it. But what Maury Terry did not do very well was present his idea to the general public that there is this shadow network of cult-like activity, that there is this link that is among those crimes that I just mentioned, particularly the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, and Charles Manson. And um, there are several reasons why Maury Terry thought about that, particularly through the activities of the Process Church. So I think that a big reason why Maury Terry didn't catch on with the general public is it's outrageous, but it's not newsworthy outrageous. Like, you wouldn't put that out on the 6 o'clock news every single day and try and talk about how there is this shadow network of cult-like activity. It will confuse people. And the, the news, the media, they don't necessarily like to tell the truth. They don't like to give only facts. They present their coverage in a way that will not confuse people. Even if something is false, the mainstream media doesn't care. Like, you can even find examples, probably in your own personal life, when you've been watching the news and you're like, wait a second, that's not true, that's not what happened. And then the history books are going to say something that's to the contrary. Maybe even something that you've experienced firsthand is contrary to what the news is putting out. But they will stick to the narrative because mainstream media is not about telling the truth. It's about getting people to stay hooked and and to watch and just to tune in every night at 6 p.m. or to read the morning paper, maybe the e-version if people like read those things on tablets and such. Maybe open a tab in your browser, look at the Los Angeles Times or something like that. It's just about connectivity. And I think that Maury Terry's theory would be very confusing but I said I was watching one of Manny Grossman's true crime walk-in talks where he goes around New York City and he looks at several sites that are connected to, um, well, not only the Son of Sam case, but also this uh, theory that Maury Terry put out. And he came to a place in which Maury Terry called the nests. And I hadn't heard of this term before, but I think it's really good. The nest is like this group of houses that belong to judges or maybe high-ranking public officials or maybe local politicians, politicians, period, nests. And I said I would segue into the Long Island serial killer mystery. I think that is a very good way of describing it. I have a series out on the Long Island serial killer available on this channel, and I'm not going to lie, I was suspicious of that nest building that was going on in the Long Island communities of Oak Beach, near Gilgo Beach, because with the Long Island serial killer, I don't see any evidence of a shadow network of cult-like activity. Instead, what you have is a bunch of wealthy people in a fluent neighborhood that is rather far from New York City, cut off from a lot of different places. Shannon Gilbert was on the phone for 23 minutes with 911, and nobody arrived during that duration. So it's somewhat secluded. 
and it's almost like a nest, like you have a concentration of wealth and a concentration of power, this community. So there is a theory that the Long Island serial killer is actually a group of people, that it may indeed be a real-life thrill-kill club because of all the differences in the crimes, yet somehow it appears that they're all connected in some way, or that even the confirmed victims of the Long Island serial killer have enormous differences in their activities, particularly the uh, murders of Jessica Taylor and Valerie Mack, who were dismembered, mutilated, decapitated. They are confirmed victims of the Long Island serial killer. But then you have other victims like the Gilgo Four, who were buried in the ground. Some of them were placed into burlap sacks, and they were buried at Gilgo Beach, hence the name. And then you have someone like Shannon Gilbert, who is not a confirmed victim of the Long Island serial killer, but had a mental breakdown, so to speak, in the house of a man named Joe Brewer, and she's trying to get, or he's trying to get her to go with the driver, Michael Pack. She's refusing, and then she just runs out into the marshy area and is never seen alive again. Based on those activities, that really gives me the impression that it's possible, and I repeat, possible, I don't know this as a certifiable fact that I could bring into a court of law, it's possible that there is a genuine thrill-kill club going on where prostitutes, sex workers, escorts, they're being murdered on Long Island, and maybe one person is responsible for the disposal of the bodies, or maybe they brought in another person. That's why they're getting evidence from different perpetrators, but they're doing this because they can get away with it. A wealthy, affluent community on Long Island is breaking the law and doing very, very de devastatingly horrible things to people who, who can't fight back. Concentration of wealth, concentration of power. It's a nest community, if you want to call it that. And I'm really not going down any type of the cult leader pathway. Instead, it seems like some people are abusing their power in society, and they're doing very despicable things because they think they can get away with it. And I do have to give credit to Tina L., who uh, sent me a lot of these things on Facebook. My personal Facebook is in the description box, and you can always write the show at blackboxonlineradio at AOL.com. But that's something that I'm really curious about. With the Zodiac Killer, I really don't um, entertain the Thrill Kill Club theory too much anymore. I thought about it a lot in 2019, and um, I really might do something bigger with it. I might share just my journey through that material in a way more extensive version in the future about all the observations that pointed me toward, okay, it seems like there's this group of people that's trying to make you think it's one person. In the Zodiac Killer mystery, not so much. In the Jack the Ripper mystery, which I'll be talking about soon because it's August now and we're going to be approaching the anniversaries of the Whitechapel murders, I also do not entertain the Thrill Kill Club theory too much. But with the Long Island serial killer, it's almost as if people were doing this simply because they were getting away with it or they were abusing escorts and sex workers it actually might be the case. I mean, it could go down a darker pathway. And these are the things that Tina L. shared with me when she said she thought that that driver I mentioned, Michael Pack, was acting as a snuff pimp where he's procuring these escorts and sex workers for um, men who are going to be videotaping the murders of women and such, if, that, if that's what she means, like a 
snuff pimp, like making snuff films where people are murdered on camera, or perhaps even to the term snuff pimp, simply that they are torturing people to death because they can get away with it. Wealthy, affluent, secluded area that isn't being closely examined by the police. People will do things like that, and crazier things have happened. Now, I mean, we can expand upon this in a future episode about the Long Island serial killer, but if any one of those crimes that I mentioned, whether it's Jack the Ripper, the Zodiac Killer, the Son of Sam, or the Long Island serial killer is at as a genuine thrill-kill club, I would say it's the Lisk murders, the Long Island serial killer murders, that is. But I would like to go on to the next segment here on True Crime Talk Radio, and we're going to revisit the Cotton Club murder from 1983 that saw the death of Roy Raiden, and really it's to talk about the movie The Cotton Club itself. I was just reading the description of that, and it turns out that it features the actor James Remar. Maybe you'll remember him from being in the movie Miracle on 34th Street, but definitely the first thing that I thought about when I read the name James Remar was he played Harry Morgan on Dexter, like Dexter the serial killer's stepfather. They have this thing called the Code of Harry in which Dexter as a budding serial killer as a kid, had to follow a certain set of rules and principles, the Code of Harry. James Remar had a very interesting role on the show Dexter because he almost exclusively only talked to one other member of the cast, and he just exists almost in the protagonist's imagination. I loved the show Dexter, if you can't tell, but back in um, the 80s, he was in the movie The Cotton Club, and he portrayed the actor, and <laughs> he portrayed the actor, he portrayed the character Dutch Schultz. I couldn't believe it when I read that in the description. I was like, Dutch Schultz? Is he like, what would I call him, a mobster, a gangster? And I just put his name into Google, and they said crime boss, so we're going to go with that. And Dutch Schultz was born Arthur Simon Flagenheimer. Very nice name, but I'm glad he changed it to Dutch Schultz because that's easier to say. Now, Dutch Schultz, of course, could have been labeled as a crime boss, but he's famous for something else. I learned about him as a kid. He was one of the guys that buried treasure in the Catskill Mountains. He assembled an enormous amount of his wealth and fortune into this box, this chest, this crate, this genuine real-life treasure chest, and it's buried somewhere in the Catskill Mountains of New York. Now, there are some clues that he left behind, and they say that Dutch Schultz frequently talked about Satan and the devil, and they think that that could mean that the treasure is buried somewhere near a place called the Devil's Tombstone, or possibly near a place called the Devil's Face. There's an excellent video about this on the Lord and Arts channel that I was watching a couple of years ago, and it just brought back all of these memories. I thought that the place, though, was called the Devil's Mouth, where they thought that it was buried, and I just remembered, you know, getting the chills down my spine as a kid when I heard about the Devil's Mouth, but every other source was referring to it as the Devil's Face. I mean, after 20 years or something, you can forget things or you can misremember. But the world of treasure hunting is enormous. I mean, just like the true crime community and how people get very passionate about certain mysteries and cases, whether it's the Long Island serial killer, the Zodiac killer, or Jack the Ripper, or even this uh, stuff we were talked about at the beginning with Maury Terry and the ultimate evil, there's some people that follow that material very, very closely. But then the world of treasure hunting, is it's its own subculture. And no one has ever found Dutch Schultz's 
treasure that is allegedly buried in the mountains. I do remember this thing as a kid, though. They said that Dutch Schultz buried a lot of his wealth in the form of Liberty Bonds. I was watching that on the TV as a kid, and I was like, what the hell's a Liberty Bond? You know, like being nine or ten years old. I was like, that doesn't sound like treasure, but it must be worth something. So I went on to see the movie Die Hard later on, which also talks about how negotiable bearer bonds can have an enormous amount of value, but I digress from that. Some other examples of famous treasure hunting incidents that I learned about on the Lord and Arts channel were the Saddle Ridge Gold Hoard and the story of G.E. Kincaid. Now, I um also heard one as a kid about how there's this story of the Lost Dutchman, about how some people buried gold somewhere in the wilderness, and there's, there's this hole in the ground that's filled with gold, and people are just trying so hard to find it. And as you can see, this is a mystery, absolutely, but it's a mystery that um, is on a much lighter note than a lot of the true crime cases that we talk about here on this channel. Oak Island is another famous one, like the Money Pit, where on Oak Island up in the... Um, northeast of the Atlantic, I mean, so says me as an American, there's this place called Oak Island, and if you just keep digging deep enough into this one pit, you're going to find this treasure, and it might even be something as simple as the writings of Francis Bacon. That's one theory about what's buried in on Oak Island. But when um, it comes to treasure hunting, I think the most famous example of this is El Dorado, the city of gold that people are looking for. And that just goes to show you, there these legends are created, and people believe them, and people will spend their lives searching for this type of treasure. Maybe sometimes it's true, maybe sometimes it's false, and... No, I mean, they simply think that Dutch Schultz wanted to hide his fortune so that other people couldn't obtain it, and they... He, other people wouldn't have access to his money if he ever wanted to get, you know, like if he ever had the opportunity to come back to it, no one would be able to find it but him. But I also had like a very, very mixed set of feelings when it came to watching this type of content. I said that I saw those videos on the Saddle Rush Gold Horde and Saddle Ridge Gold Horde, excuse me, and on um, G.E. Kincaid. The Saddle Ridge Gold Horde might actually be a case where they have some credible findings. With G.E. Kincaid, though, it's completely different because it was the story of how they discovered these artifacts in the Grand Canyon that heavily resemble ancient Egypt, but then the location of them in the Grand Canyon has been lost to time, and there's this ancient Egyptian-style treasure in, like, these hidden tombs and caverns in the Grand Canyon and so on. And I remember watching the Lord and Arts video back in 2017. I think it was about maybe 40, 45 minutes long. And at one point, the host, John Lorden, even said, I'm concerned about these findings. Oh, wait. No. I'm curious. I'm not concerned. I'm not concerned. And I was wondering, why is he investing so much time into creating a video that's like 45 minutes long about a story that is almost certainly false about Egyptian artifacts being produced by natives and hidden somewhere in the Grand Canyon. And I was just wondering, like, what's the purpose of this? He doesn't even seem to believe that it's true himself. And the, the simple answer is, 
we talk about things that we're curious about. We talk about things that we want to explore and ideas that we want to investigate. I mean, maybe Dutch Schultz's treasure is actually out there. G.E. Kincaid and these um, artifacts in the Grand Canyon is most likely false. And John Lorden even said in that episode that the article that uh, became the source material for a lot of understandings about G.E. Kincaid came out on April 8th. And one theory is that it was actually an April Fool's joke that just got delayed to the next week's edition, you know, seven days after April 1st. But I do highly recommend his episodes on Dutch Schultz, on the Saddle Ridge Gold Horde, as well, of course, the um, G.E. Kincaid episode. Sometimes you just want to watch something a little bit different than hearing about these horrible stories of human tragedy. But on that note, to talk about a different story of human tragedy, back in 2020, I did an episode on the Beavis and Butthead fire incident. Maybe you'll remember back to the 1990s when the show Beavis and Butthead was very popular, and there was a famous lawsuit that was discussed throughout the media, and it went on early 90s, mid-90s. I mean, people talked about this when I was a kid, and then all the way into the new millennium, and even to the present day, about how a boy saw an episode of Beavis and Butthead, and he set his trailer on fire where his family lived, and the trailer burned to the ground, and his sister passed away, and the family filed a lawsuit, and they didn't get anything out of it. But that's the, like the sort of urban legend. And when I did that episode last year called the Beavis and Butthead Fire Incident, I was using a lot of news sources from the early 90s, and I thought I was doing such a good job reading up on the subject. But somebody wrote into the channel saying, I was like, you've completely misunderstood. And first, I will lay out some of the groundwork. The name of the boy who was accused of starting the fire was Austin Messner. His sister was named Jessica Matthews, and, um, oh, I just had the name of her, their mother in my mind, Darcy Burke. Yes, and everybody in the family had a different name. I think you can get the idea. But she accused um, the show of Beavis and Butthead of being a bad influence on her son, Austin, and say this is what prompted him to set a fire. Specifically, it's Beavis rather than Butthead, and you can find some stills of that episode. But what someone said was, this boy Austin didn't even watch the show. Do some research. His mother called the media in before she even called the fire station. And that was a year ago. But um, over the past couple days, I finally decided to read up on that, and I found just that exact quotation from Austin Messner, and it's been shared on all the Beavis and Butthead fandom sites, where they're saying just that, that Austin Messner has written out this statement, I never watched the show. My mother was a drug addict. We lived in a trailer. We didn't have cable. So um, he's saying that, I mean, he, he is also the um, origin of that other claim that his mother called in the media before she called the fire station. And I'll say something about that in just a second, but um, I know some people are going to have a lot of trouble visualizing this if you're born in like 2001 or 2002 and thereon. But we used to have this thing called cable television. We didn't have Netflix. We didn't have Paramount Plus. We didn't have any of those streaming services. And you had to watch Beavis and Butthead on cable. And I even Googled it, doing some hardcore research here. Beavis and Butthead was first released on VHS, like video, in 1995. 
this incident occurred in 1993, two years before. Yes, thank you, Detective Ned. So there could be some truth to that, that he never actually watched the show. And the neighbors were also people who even raised that question. They're saying, how did this kid, Austin Messner, watch Beavis and Butthead? They didn't have cable for the reasons that Austin laid out. I do find it almost beyond belief, though, that the mother, Darcy Burke, did not call the fire department immediately. I mean, just that she called in the media station before alerting the authorities, before calling in the fire department. And there's a very big reason for that. I mean, did she set the fire herself and blame it on her son? I mean, if, if her son set the fire... She would have had to have had this idea in the back of her mind, just waiting for the opportune moment. I mean, it sounds way too calculated. And I was very skeptical of that specific detail. And I don't mean to put down Austin Messner. I mean, he lost his sister in this tragedy when the, that house fire uh, burned their home to the ground and Jessica Matthews lost her life. Rest in peace to her. But I just find that it's a little bit beyond belief that someone could have had the awareness to call in the media station saying, hey, my son started a fire because of the show Beavis and Butthead and then called the fire department. Um, let's not kid ourselves. Memory can mess with you. I told you I couldn't remember that story about Dutch Schultz, word for word, devil's mouth, devil's face, devil's butt. <laughs> no, um, that's just some reference. Whatever. But in all seriousness, um, Sometimes you just listen to a story, and then you're like, now wait a second, my gut instinct is pushing me that way, and I can't exactly tell you why, other than my gut instinct leads me to believe something differently. But um, Austin Messner did end up contacting Mike Judge, the creator of Beavis and Butthead, simply to say that your show did not influence me to do anything like that. And he said he has never seen the show. He doesn't want to watch it because it's connected to his family's personal tragedy. But even to this day, we can see that media sources are still reporting that this guy burned down his family's trailer because of Beavis and Butthead. And I pulled it up from an article in 2013, I think it was. It was after the Beavis and Butthead revival that was done around 2011. And they were talking about Beavis and Butthead was back on the air, but they can't escape that tragedy that saw the death of Jessica Matthews when Austin Messner burned down his family's trailer. And, I mean, that was an article from the New York Post, and I was really wondering, well, now, wait a second, if this is true that he never watched the show and he is making all of these statements, why are the news media people reporting on this? What did I say at the beginning? They're going to share a narrative that people can comprehend even if it's not true. Let's not kid ourselves, the media completely does that. The only thing that I noticed, though, about the articles that I had been reading is they're not even really articles. They're like forum posts that people have shared talking all about their favorite show. I mean, they're saying but just that it's only found in like the Beavis and Butthead fandom world. Maybe it's popping up in some other news article that I didn't get to, but I definitely found it on a lot of sources that are promoting the show. So... That might raise some questions, but even if it is true that Austin Messner made that claim that he never watched Beavis and Butthead and this was all a media hoax, they're just trying to blame it on him, maybe his mother even had something to do with it, I 
I can't even tell you the truth, but I can tell you that the media will not share the truth if it's going to confuse the audience. They're just going to put out anything that's going to get people hooked and get people to keep tuning in, and so on. And the final thing I would like to leave you with here on this episode of True Crime Talk Radio is, back in 2018, I used to listen to this one uh, political talk show on, um, what was it called? Um, oh my gosh, I can't believe I remember Redcon One Media, I think, was the name of that. It was it was really weird. They had this kind of Facebook live streaming platform, and Free Patriot stands out for some reason. Like, they changed the name. I think it was called Redcon One. And the host of that program, Chris Chella, would always promote a different radio show. He's like, please tune in to listen to my friend Bill Hickel, who hosted a show called In the Pickle Barrel. You know, Bill Hickel in the Pickle Barrel. And I was like... I really got to listen to his show at some point, and I just decided to finally check out an episode three years after first hearing about it, and I was uh, driving in the car today listening to Bill Hickel in the Pickle Barrel, and he talked about a story of a woman who was getting ready to take a shower, and then a man appeared in her bathroom, and she had no idea who he was and the man started disrobing and taking her clothes off and taking his clothes off he's taking his clothes off excuse me she's already naked because she's getting ready for a shower so she decided to hide behind the shower curtain and she's screaming and freaking out because there's this man in her bathroom and then he is just trying to get into the shower with her but he's not touching her he's not doing anything with her he's just standing there and then when the authorities actually got involved, the defense was he just wanted to be close to her. He just wanted to be nearby, some guy who's not had not experiencing the strongest mental faculties. And to many people, that might sound really weird. But I talk about a lot of true crime here on YouTube, and I've encountered very similar stories that I have episodes about here, here on Black Box Online Radio. The first one I thought about was the story of Cecil Collins, who was a football player with the Miami Dolphins, and after he had been drafted... He broke into a woman's apartment, and then he claimed that he just wanted to watch her while she was sleeping, and the judge sentenced him to more than 13 years in prison for that unauthorized entry. It's like a variant of breaking and entering. It's a very harsh sentence, but the judge just wanted to teach him a lesson and also show that he wasn't going to get preferential treatment for being an NFL athlete. And Cecil Collins openly said that that was something that saved his life because he was a criminal deviant uh, in other ways, too. And I also talked about the Jim Bob Cooter in his underwear incident. That's a different episode here on this channel. The Cecil Collins episode is called Watcher in the Dark. But uh, yes, Jim Bob Cooter, who was a college football quarterback, and he is a... um. He is a running backs coach in the NFL now. He got so intoxicated one night, he got down into his underwear, crawled in through somebody's window, I believe it was. It's another variant of unauthorized entry and got into bed with a woman. And she's like, what the hell? What's going on? Why is somebody in my bedroom? People do this. It's called unauthorized entry. And... With Jim Bob Cooter, he was horribly intoxicated. Cecil Collins more or less did it because he thought he was untouchable. He thought that he was immune to the law because he was an athlete by his own admission. I'm not exactly sure what this guy who – I think he was from Texas, but I wasn't quite sure. You know, I'm just listening to the uh, program while I was driving in the car. But people do things like that. They, it, it, And it actually is 
probably what the guy was saying. He just wanted to be close to her. Oh, it's wrong. Absolutely, it's wrong. He should not have done that. It's criminal behavior. I hope they put him in jail for for many years. Maybe not 13, but he definitely should serve some jail time unless he was mentally ill and he should be sent to a psychiatric institution. But I definitely just wasn't completely outraged by something like that. It would be absolutely, absolutely mortifying if you were just getting ready for a shower and then some man appears in your bathroom and is trying to join you in the shower and just not saying anything, just gets behind the shower curtain with you. Ugh. Disturbing. What a horrible way to end the episode. Why don't we end the episode in somewhat of a lighter way? Or maybe darker, depending on the context. Thank you so much for uh, listening to this episode of Black Box Online Radio. I do have to apologize once again that yesterday's episode came out late, but I hope you'll check it out, Arthur Lee Allen and the Murder of Valentine Sally. And on Wednesday, I'm going to be doing a solid Zodiac Killer Q&A session. Really, it's the AMA, ask me anything, but all devoted to the Zodiac Killer. And on Friday, I'm going to be doing an episode about Jack the Ripper and exploring some alternative theories because it's August right now and the end of August is the beginning of the anniversary of the Ripper crimes, the Whitechapel murders. And there's a lot of stuff that I've uncovered. I mean, it's easily available to the general public, but there are a lot of links that I don't hear people talking about too frequently with Jack the Ripper, so please tune in on Friday for the Anything Goes segment. And this week there will be a regularly scheduled episode about the disappearance of Donna Lass. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. You guys are awesome, and I am also the presenter of Astro Psych 400, a different YouTube channel here, different program, but there, it's a 12-part series on astrology and star signs if you're curious about that. You can always visit the Teespring page, Amazon.com, for the book Killer on a White Horse. Facebook, Instagram, lots of things in the description box. You can download the show for free at Launchpad 1. Links to that are in the description box as well. It's a pure podcast, like the audio only, but it's available for free downloads. Anybody can write the show at blackboxonlineradio at aol.com. And I will see you on Instagram for the bonus podcast. Until next time. <laughs>